0: So it's all here the story of our time with the barcode there is no record of a mistake or an unpleasantness or criticism that is not included in the files here this library will show the facts not just the joy and the triumphs but the sorrows and the failures too. Hello and welcome to Hardy Hearty Five and a Half. Welcome,
1: babe. Huh? Hello. Well, I'm just cleaning out my desk. You know how I stuff all kinds of stuff in my desk. You and do. then years later I figure out what's in it. Right. But I was just looking through these papers that look kind of odd. I don't Yeah, what do you have there? What? this says white house top secret confidential Babe, what oh my have we had a president come over that i don't don't know how do how did these get in my desk
0: how did those get in your desk
1: i I need help babe i know we're in serious trouble now
0: (laughs) before nicholas cage comes and tracks you down put those aside because i have just the person that you're going to need his name is mark lawrence he's the director of the lbj library in austin texas
1: so maybe he can help us figure out I don't know if he can help us how to figure out how these got in my desk, but what do we do with them now?
0: That's right. And what
1: is the National Archives about? Because we've heard it so much in the news now.
0: That's right. So what is
1: this really all about?
0: Well, if we want to know all about where classified documents should be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: And a ton of other things like presidents, wives, dresses, and their china, and all the things that I find interesting. Listen, we've got just the podcast for you. You're going to love this interview with Mark Lawrence. Mark, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. This is a, like a fascination of ours and a lot sure. of people. So we appreciate you taking time with Hardy Party Five and a Half. Um, no problem. Before we start with these questions, inquiring minds want to know, how does one get your job? Like, uh-huh. how did you get to where you are?
2: So that's a that's a really good question. There are, um, I guess there are 13 presidential library directors right now, and it is a total mixed bag. There is no, there is no good single answer to that question. There are people who've come to the, these positions through the National Archives Bureaucracy, basically with archives backgrounds. There are people who have worked at other museums and kind of museum administration. And then there's a couple of us like me who are basically academics okay. um, and came more to presidential libraries through doing research and you know, being involved in conferences and public programs and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. you got to read a lot of books
2: to be the uh, director yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, In some cases. Well, that's true. Although people think we're, you know, I think one of the reasons why it's sometimes hard to get UT Austin students to come over here is that they think, oh, it's a library, right? It's a place yeah. full of books. Um, but, you know, we actually don't have that many books. It's a, a library in the sense of holding all the original um Documentary material from the Johnson presidency.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a great thing because, like, right now we've got a lot of historical documents in the news. Oh my goodness, all the time, every Classified day. Classified
1: documents. Everywhere. Oh yeah. So,
2: like,
0: so what's in your house? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all
2: right. <laughs> Don't answer that. Or, or my or the garage. <laughs> yeah, oh, the
0: garage. And do you have a Corvette? Um, <laughs> So what did what did people used to do with those before, like the presidential libraries? Like, what did what was co- historically done with with um, his documents?
2: Well, uh, there's no single answer to that either, which is one of the reasons why it's great to have the National Archives and the Presidential Library System. Um, presidential materials were understood to be the personal property of the president, and just like with any of our purple, personal property, it tended to get. Scattered here and there. I mean, some of them set up, you know, libraries or small institutions that might host or even still host yeah. um, some of the papers, but some, you know, were uh, left with family who might, you know, have lost them or they might have been destroyed by fire or other, you know, problems that came along. Yeah. Um, they might have been sold. Um, so basically, uh, you know, th- this material. Tended to get scattered and, in many cases, lost over the years, which um, you know is is a sad thing for for historians trying to reconstruct the the history of those earlier periods.
0: Yeah, oh, interesting.
2: So,
1: where did the idea for the library come? You, we have all these papers scattered in no organization. So, where did the idea for the library come from?
2: Uh, the library. Yeah, so, there's a simple answer to that question. The, li- <laughs> the idea for the presidential libraries came from Franklin Roosevelt. I think that's a pretty. A, a pretty clear cut um uh, reality, so Franklin Roosevelt um decided that it was tragic that all of this material was being scattered and in many cases lost, and decided that he would establish a presidential library that would hold all of his papers from his very, very long presidency and very very consequential presidency. And um, you know he he also set aside the space where this would happen as you know part of his estate in in Hyde Park, New York. So he had a, a nice place to to build this this library and to make sure that his papers would be preserved and made available right to the American public. So that was his real innovation: was to acknowledge that even though technically all of these papers were his own property. Um, they, in many senses, belong to the American public and were part of American history and therefore should be available to American citizens and others as well, for that matter, to come and inspect for their own purposes.
0: Yeah. Mm. And we've definitely partaken a few of those. We love Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Like the Bush is cool. Yeah. Like you just mentioned, it's not just books like at the Bush, uh, the W, as I call him, because we're close <laughs> friends. Um, <laughs> at his, there's a lot of interaction as far as like you can sit down and they give you scenarios that a president wouldn't have to face. And it it gives you like a simple idea of how hard these situations and mm-hmm. Just these decisions are because then it like it'll have a bombing has happened here. How do you react as the president? You get four mm-hmm. choices. Exactly. So when we when we hear presidential library, there's so, like you said, there's so much more to it that I think we don't realize how interesting all this is. It makes mm-hmm. you think about things. So Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm. It- as a director of one of these I'm delighted to hear you say that. I mean certainly one of the purposes is to you know get people to think critically and deeply about their history and one of the ways to do that if your subject is a president is to try to take that, try to take visitors into the dilemmas you know that confronted the president during their presidency and almost any you know president I think every president who has a presidential library probably every president across American history faced you know really difficult decisions sometimes Enormously consequential ones, so you know what to do about Iraq in the aftermath of September eleventh in the case that you mentioned what to do about Vietnam in the case of Lyndon Johnson, what to do about the atomic bomb in nineteen forty five and and on and on one one could go, so you know what we try to do here certainly is to take our visitors inside that decision to expose them to the different pressures that operated on l b j and not necessarily to come to the same conclusion that l b j did but at least to appreciate why, um, you know, the, the the decision-making shaped up in the way it did.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you realize they're people like it's, it's, it's a person trying to make decisions just like we would. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're just on talk radio and all that, it's easy to not, it's easy to make a caricature of everyone mm-hmm. that you're talking about. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have these libraries yeah. where you can see the full person, maybe yeah. a fuller person. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah that's, that's, I, I'm I'm again delighted to hear you say that because that that's certainly um uh, my hope and my my intention here at LBJ. And it's it's difficult sometimes, right? Because you know, in these in these palatial um buildings that are given over to the legacy of presidents, you can start to lose track, I think, pretty readily that okay, there's a real human being at the at the heart of these stories.
1: Yeah. Um yeah.
2: so you know, the the sheer grandeur of these buildings and the the, the kind of sacred quality of, you know, the, of our task of preserving all of this stuff can sometimes mm-hmm. undercut exactly the very important point that you make about how important it is to recognize that these were real people subject to emotions and, mm-hmm. you know, and political pressures and they were tired and grumpy and you know, all the rest <laughs> at, at different times.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I think we're fortunate to have, like in Texas, there's three that I know of. Is there more than three?
2: I think only three, right?
1: There's just yeah. three,
0: right? In Texas. Three.
2: That's right. And one just up the road in Little Rock.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. That's right. Are you in a group message with all the other 13 directors? Like, do you guys have share a group text?
2: Yeah, text. Uh, that's a good idea. No, but uh <laughs> yeah. email, email. I think for it's kind of sure.
0: cool. I mean, there's yeah. only 13 of you. Like,
2: that's not that, that's, that's true.
0: Yeah, you guys should have a group text. I think that would be a fun.
2: Yeah, thing. <laughs> okay. there, there's a there's an opening. There there are actually oh man two or three openings right now. So it's a it's an even smaller little club than oh. than is ideal. But we do we certainly email all the time and um, cool. we meet periodically as well. During the pandemic, we met twice a week some uh, for long stretches of time. So really? uh, that was one of the real upsides of the pandemic, as far as I'm concerned. I got to know these people yeah. much yeah. more intimately than I would have. Um, if if we had just um, been carrying on as usual,
0: yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Okay, so who who pays for these presidential libraries and who decides where they get to go?
2: So the the, the president himself, hopefully herself, before too long, will uh, gets to decide where where they go. Um, it usually in consultation, of course, with a private foundation that that president establishes usually during the period when they're in office and the that private foundation is usually you know in, is in charge of raising the funds for building the institution so the short answer to your question is that um these institutions are privately funded uh through the work of a foundation that's established during the the presidency with the goal of establishing a presidential library and then and this goes back to the pattern established by Franklin Roosevelt a very long time ago The institution is then turned over to the federal government to um, to operate on behalf of the American people.
0: Hmm. Okay, and then they decide where to put it.
1: Or the president. The
0: president decides where to put it.
2: Right. Exactly. Um, You know, I, I think you know the president's of course, are making these decisions based on where they trace their own roots and where they want to leave their, their legacy. But um, you know, I think you can see as well that they make these decisions based on where uh, their institution is most likely to draw visitors and researchers. So unsurprisingly, many of them, uh, at least since the LBJ library was established, are located on university campuses. I think this is a a good partnership in every case where this has, has panned out because you have a kind of built in um, community of scholars and students who presumably can make use of the records and, you know, will have uh, a deep interest in the public programs and, and all the other kinds of activities that happen under the roofs, typically of presidential libraries.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Okay. So the national archives, we've, we're hearing a lot about it in the news now with all the classified documents and all that. So, describe that system to us, and then tell us how the presidential libraries fit into that.
2: So, you're right. The presidential, the, oh, sorry, can I start that one over? The, yeah. um, <laughs> the, the 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 National Archives has historically been a fairly low profile uh, bureaucracy, and I think that's oh, yeah. th- that makes everybody happy who's connected to the National Archives, right? right this is yeah. this is a thoroughly Nonpartisan partisan um, agency of the executive branch that performs an essentially custodial function for the American people. Basically, the National Archives stores, processes, makes available the documentary record of American history. Right. And, um, the national archives the national archives and records administration or nara has 40 something facilities scattered across the country the biggest facility is the headquarters uh, located just outside Uh, Washington, D.C. in College Park, Maryland, although there is also the old National Archives building on the mall, which is where visitors can go see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and other foundational documents. But the National Archives has facilities, as I say, all over the country. Some of these are simply record centers, meaning that they are big warehouses of documents and and they have reading rooms. So researchers or ordinary citizens for whatever reason can go there and look at materials that may interest them. But uh, 13 of these 40 something uh, facilities are presidential libraries like the LBJ library. So we're we're part of a system of repositories of records, but the presidential libraries are special in the sense that they also have much more of a public face you know they have uh public programs educational programs aimed at teachers and and students and museums um yeah. that that are the reason why most people come through our doors
0: yeah yeah i think most of us really know about these things because of national treasure of the movie that's pretty, uh, right. all we, <laughs> we have to still that's the like really all we know about like where these yeah. things are kept
2: <laughs> yep yep yeah exactly
0: like the extent of our knowledge, for the most part.
1: Well, and like you mentioned, it, it's kind of meant to be in the background. It's not meant to be the national news. So it's probably <laughs> for people that are doing that job, it's weird to be in that public setting, hearing all these questions and stuff about your job. You know, it's mm-hmm. like,
2: yeah, I, I I think that's right. Um, it, it's an uncomfortable position to be in yeah. because, you know, the 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 core principle at the heart of what the National Archives uh tries to do is i would hope and i think most leaders of the national archives would hope is a is a non-controversial one right yeah. we store make available process documentary records so that american citizens can come and inspect the history of their own nation and yeah. underlying this is the idea that the availability of this record uh to the scrutiny of ordinary citizens is a fundamental Dimension of a healthy democracy. So, you know, I think one of the troubling things that's that that that's cropped up recently is, you know, some questioning about how this process works in in practice. And um, given the importance of the underlying principle, I think it's um, it's it's an uncomfortable position to be in when yeah. those kinds of questions are asked.
0: Yeah, for sure. I so, can
1: imagine. So you mentioned earlier that the. Earlier in history, the president's stuff was considered private for the most part until Roosevelt did that. So now is there are there things now that are private and public or is everything considered public for the president?
2: So this is a a really interesting question. So um, the the answer is is a little bit complicated. So Franklin Roosevelt established the first presidential library, but the operating assumption at that time was still that his records and all of the artifacts and gifts that he was given in his role as president were still his personal property. And um, that principle held all the way until the late 1970s. And it's only with the Presidential Records Act of 1978 that Congress established legislation um. Uh, specifying that presidential records were actually the property of the American people rather than the individual uh, president, him him or herself. So this was a really landmark moment in the history of of presidential records and of the National Archives and Records Administration from essentially the Reagan administration forward. This legislation was adopted under Carter, but from Reagan forward – presidential records were the property of the American people from their creation. Um, And this gave, of course, the National Archives a much more direct role in managing the material, in claiming the material on literally on the day that the presidential administration ends and then beginning the process of of, um, consolidating it, processing it, and making it available.
1: So was that inspired by the whole water, Watergate Nixon? We need to know what the president's doing, kind of thing.
2: That's exactly right. Um, as in so many arenas of you know American life, um, some really profound reforms in the area that we're talking about came about in the late nineteen seventies as a result of Watergate and in um, other events that seem to suggest that some really fundamental reforms were necessary. In order to close down opportunities for corruption and mismanagement, Mm -hmm.
0: Hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, So, the first ladies have they always been involved in presidential libraries, and like, how has that changed over time? Um, I think
2: it has always been uh, a, a significant part of what presidential libraries do. For one thing, the First Lady's materials have, I can't think of an exception, um, been part of the material that has come to the National Archives and to the presidential libraries um, as as a kind of central part of the record of the administration um, in question. But uh, first ladies have also been played up very much so, I think, in the museums, which, again, is the reason why most people come through the doors to see a presidential uh, library. Um, I think all of them have exhibits, certainly we do, I can't think of an exception, uh, focused on the lives and and careers and inputs into the administration of the the first ladies. Um you know, I, th- I think that first ladies have played quite different roles in different administrations, perhaps unsurprisingly. The general trend across probably all of American history, but certainly across the 20th century, has been from a relatively passive first lady, perhaps with responsibilities in the arena of the social life and social activity of the White House, to more engagement with policy. Questions and more engagement with the political work of the the president. There are certainly exceptions. I say that's generally the trend, but you know we can see uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, maybe the quintessential policy oriented first lady. You know she was back in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Yeah. Uh, whereas you know Jacqueline Onassis, Kennedy, right, was a somewhat m- more comfortable being in the the background, at least when it came to policy questions. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had Nancy Reagan, who had policy ambitions, or Lady Bird Johnson, for that matter, but Melania Trump, not so much, right? So there's been some fluctuation, even as I think Americans have come to expect more of their first ladies and take it in stride now that first ladies are out front as political and policy spokespeople for the administration.
0: Yeah, That's funny because when we go to libraries always, or even museums, he beelines towards like the history. He wants to look at the battle scenes and all that stuff. And I'm like, but look at this dress he wore when he was baptized.
2: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) right.
1: The
0: personal person. I'm all about the personal person. You better believe I want to see Melania Trump's clothing up close.
2: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. Clothing in China is another thing that Uh people people love. And with good reason, it's really pretty spectacular.
0: Yeah. I want to see all that.
1: Yep. (laughs) Okay. So at the start of the episode, we played a clip of when lbj the groundbreaking of the museum and in that he mentioned that he wanted the good and bad to be in the museum which i think is is a good thing like you say we can make these a little too reverential and you're not right. a single person or anything so lbj it just seems like a really complicated guy <laughs> so can you kind of take us into just a snapshot of who this guy was and how that affected his policies in his presidency
2: you're right that at the dedication of the library um 51 years ago LBJ said you know it's all here and we're going to make it available to the american public with the bark off was his uh his very texas way of <laughs> of phrasing it and you know that's a that's a um that's a slogan we use a lot here at the LBJ library i, I think i can say i uh, um that you know everyone who works here is really dedicated to a max as, as much openness As we can reasonably um, have, uh, even while respecting that there are some reasons to keep things um, secret, either for national security reasons or um, or uh, reasons of um, of um, privacy. Yeah, but um, you know, LBJ, you're quite right. Was a larger than life figure, enormously complicated, and I think, but. Uh, There was one characteristic of LBJs in particular that I think stands out in the minds of every biographer, every historian, no matter where they've come down on on his complexities, and that is his persuasiveness. (laughs) He was enormously persuasive. He knew how to twist people's arms and craft arguments and use inducements and sometimes even threats to get what he wanted. Uh, And uh, I think where this shows up most importantly is in his relationship with Congress. So LBJ was by some measures the most effective president in all of american history maybe second to franklin roosevelt in getting legislation adopted right hundreds of of bills many of them profoundly transformative were approved under LBJ's presidency with his strong support. So um here at the LBJ Library our most iconic object it's a little bit boring I have to admit is a is the signing pen. We have many exhibits throughout the library that is literally a stack of pens, you know, <laughs> uh which which suggest all of the legislation that that LBJ signed. So it's this uh, enormous outpouring of transformative legislation um that I think is Uh, the most important um, legacy of the LBJ library, uh, of the LBJ presidency. Um, And of course, here we're talking about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Immigration Act, numerous bills connected to education, environment, um, this whole array of domestic policy initiatives that we know, and LBJ gave us the, the lingo to talk about this, as the Great Society Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so you you have lbj and we know he's kind of the texas guy kind of irreverent you would say and then you've got john f kennedy who seems like the like quintessential northeastern little uptight you know Uh a little more formal probably Uh so how did how did these two guys get along and how did after kennedy was assassinated how did lbj kind of take that kennedy legacy with them and first off, how was their personal relationship as far yeah. as that goes? And how did he weave in Kennedy in, into his own thing?
2: Yeah, really interesting question. So I think that um, it's clear that JFK chose LBJ as his running mate for purely political reasons. Yeah. JFK understood that he was a Northeasterner. He was perceived, although we could debate whether this was accurate as kind of a liberal within the Democratic Party. So he really needed a Southerner, someone who is perceived, and again, we could debate whether that was an accurate perception, as a more conservative figure. So LBJ was made to order. He was. A very powerful Senate Majority Leader in the late 1950s and very early 1960s, he had a very high public profile. He had himself been mentioned as a presidential contender back in 1956 and then in 1960 as well. So, um, LBJ kind of checked all the boxes. But I think, you know, given the importance of politics in that choice, it's perhaps no surprise that LBJ wasn't the guy that Kennedy was going to go to for advice, you know, on every issue that came down the road. So. LBJ was quite frustrated I think as vice president by the fact that he was largely marginalized. He was given a few areas where he could um you know focus his prodigious energies but he, the the vice presidency were in some ways the I think many of his biographers would agree the most frustrating of LBJ's maybe his entire political career because he was so marginal um, from the real action, um, which was you know uh, focused on Kennedy himself and the advisors that JFK prized very much, including uh, his brother Robert Kennedy, who is uh, someone who uh, LBJ particularly detested, and it was it was it was it was very much mutual. So you know, LBJ suddenly arrives in the presidency in November of 1963. And um it, you know his relationship at that point to the legacy of, of JFK was really, really complicated. On the one hand, JFK was very popular. In fact, he had become significantly more popular during his presidency. So LBJ had to be really careful, right, to try to use uh uh JFK's high political standing, the um Enormous outpouring of sympathy given the tragic circumstances under which JFK had been assassinated. And yet LBJ was very much his own man who had – and of course he had wanted to be president for a long time and here here now was his opportunity. So he really had to balance – I think using Kennedy's legacy, living with Kennedy's legacy, exploiting it to the extent that he could, and also trying to carve out a niche for himself. And I, I think many biographers, including ones who've been fairly critical of LBJ, would acknowledge that he did a pretty good job with that. He he really found ways to harness the sympathy for Kennedy in the early days of his administration and scored some important uh, legislative accomplishments right away in 1964 um but over time LBJ was able to step out from under JFK's shadow and um really uh, especially after his sweeping presidential victory in 1964 kind of um you know establish himself as the as the the dominant figure um, and really to get people to think of the Johnson presidency as a true Johnson presidency and not just a continuation of the Kennedy presidency.
1: Yeah. Well, and when you talk about that stuff, my mind goes to sports teams because we <laughs> like to think like our favorite teams, they're really good and do great things. We like to think everybody likes each other and, you know, they're just all great friends. But when we hear about it, most of the time there's strife and there's people don't like each other and you'd rather not be. But I think at the same time, that friction is what helps you do good things. It helps you move forward, I think. So like you described with Kennedy and LBJ, they're like, we don't really like each other, but we're going to make (laughs) yeah,
2: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, Yeah. I think think there's something to be said for that. Absolutely. You know, and and even during um, LBJ's presidency, after the assassination, I think LBJ was very good at at finding ways to build coalitions
1: Mm, yeah
2: on whatever the issue of the moment might be whether it was civil rights or poverty or education or immigration Mm. so he took as a and there may be a lesson for our own time in this he took it as a given that look you know people in congress americans may not like each other, certainly don't agree with each other Mm. on policy questions across the board at all times. But on any given issue, there are opportunities to create coalitions. You can find points of commonality among people who at first glance might not look like they have that much In common. And I think LBJ's real skill, again, going back to his persuasive abilities, was to cobble together winning coalitions, very much bipartisan coalitions Mm -hmm. on a shifting array of issues, especially in 1964 and 1965, when he was really riding high.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think we could use a little more of that. Yeah, that's a
2: good lesson for us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: So if so visiting the library the presidential library what can somebody expect like give us just a couple of highlights of like your favorite things You told us about well,
2: the, pen. the pens Depends right right yeah. and I do acknowledge that that's a little bit boring so yes we have <laughs> we have more exciting things than that I think you know the centerpiece in terms of our artifacts the centerpiece of our museum is the desk on which the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed? It is literally in the center of our museum. When um, uh, recently Nancy Pelosi, the vice president, other dignitaries have come to the library. That's where they want to have their photo taken, and and that suits us very nicely because I think that that voting rights desk really is symbolically the the core of what Lyndon Johnson stood for, at least in the in the domestic. Arena, but we have other really interesting items. We have a moon rock. (laughs) Uh, LBJ was, um, you know, as many Americans know, maybe one of the things that every American knows best about LBJ was very much involved in the space program, the Apollo program. And he wasn't president when, you know, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, but uh, it was clear that LBJ had had an awful lot to do with making that event happen, and so unsurprisingly, we have a moon rock, which is not a, a large piece of uh, of rock, but is nevertheless uh, pretty cool, yeah. and I think one of our um, our prize our prize possessions. But you know, you mentioned earlier the the first lady's clothing and and yeah. uh, the china and that sort of thing. We have an ample supply of those types of objects as well, which are very very popular with our visitors.
0: Yeah, that's
1: nice. Okay, we're I gonna put it. you on. We're gonna put you on the spot now. We're gonna take. <laughs> we're gonna do the little ranking. We ask you, if ah. you things for you. We're gonna take LBJ out of it because we know it's the best. <laughs> you know,
2: of so course. Don't need to go there. So <laughs> yeah. be,
1: beyond below LBJ, what are your personal like top three presidential libraries, and why oh. do you like them?
2: All right. Yeah. You're going to get me in trouble with my,
1: uh, <laughs> with my, uh, to get with my colleagues all fired up. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm going to say um, uh, probably at the top of that list, after LBJ, of course, would be the <laughs> Reagan library. And the, the reason for that, I mean, it's there, I suppose there's there are several reasons. I mean, the, the material there is so rich and largely unexplored because a lot of it has become available only in recent times. A lot of good work still to be done on the Reagan presidency. But the museum is really spectacular. It's huge for one thing. It's the biggest museum in the system. It has it, it has Air Force One in it, right? That tells you how big it is. <laughs> People can can see Ronald Reagan's uh, 747 in that in that exhibit. And by the way, the setting. In um, in this beautiful part of California is just so spectacular that that alone is worth going there for. Yeah. Uh, so I think I'd put that at the top of the list. I'd, I'd also certainly put the Kennedy Library pretty, pretty high up there in some ways. Architecturally, it's it reminds me a little bit of the LBJ library, um, but where it differs from LBJ is its setting on Boston Harbor a really beautiful spot right at the edge of the water which i think is appropriate given um JFK's origins and his time he spent on cape cod his love of sailing and 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 all the rest i think i'd put that in second place and you know the other one i would mention is the is the truman library in independence missouri maybe not the most exciting town in the world but a very interesting town okay. without question but the reason i would put that on my list is because the Museum exhibit at the Truman Library has just been renovated uh It was finished actually during the pandemic, so that that in a sense was was well timed because it, the the building was closed for some time while they they installed new exhibits. Uh, but it's really amazing. It's really state of the art when it comes to museum technology, museum design. So I would strongly urge um, anyone who's interested in presidential libraries to check that one out. One of the oldest uh, museums in the system is also now one of the most cutting edge. Huh, that's
1: really okay, cool. Okay, this is great because yeah, if, if we're close to one when we're traveling, we we try to go to one. Yeah. So now yeah. these are at the top of our list. Right. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I. I think a lot of folks might agree that those are yeah, top always, three
0: We went to California just <laughs> over Christmas, but we had our two boys with us and they had a whole slew of things. They want, you know, we were going to a charger game, Laker game. We no. couldn't, we couldn't fit in the,
1: the presidential. But honestly, great.
0: we probably don't want to go with them. Honestly. We want to feel good, like <laughs> the kind of save room to save. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we need to, we, for many years, we've been checking off baseball stadiums off our list, but I think, oh, yeah. you know, they do sell those little pop charts where you just scratch oh, off yeah. the stadiums. They need that uh-huh. for the presidential library if they don't have it already. That is a selling point.
2: A you know there is off. a there's a passport. That okay. I think I, I, yeah I think we stole this idea from the National Park Service. Honestly, there yes. <laughs> yes. is a passport yes. that people people kids, buy these things.
0: Yeah, I think our kids had one and they were doing yeah. the monuments.
2: Yeah, we did. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah, and so I think yeah, exactly. Can you get We're going to start
2: that's
1: stamping them off. Babe.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Well, you got to come to this part of the country first because I think we have the, the densest, uh, do, yeah, <laughs> cluster of, of libraries.
0: We've been fortunate <laughs> enough to see a few of those. So, Mark, <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. I have learned so much from you, and I appreciate all that you do for for history and keeping things alive and making things like accessible to us. So, we just thank you for spending time with us this morning. It's been a Great conversation.
2: Totally my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, do you know what to do with those documents now?
1: Well, my first thought was to burn them. <laughs> but but I think maybe, maybe I should just take him to Mark and let him put them where they need to be.
0: That's right. I think you yeah. can figure it out. I think
1: that's probably the best thing I
0: <laughs> I really love that interview with him because I just feel like I learned so much more and it made me want to go out and like go to all of them. Like we really need to check those yeah, off our list. We
1: need to get a passport and start punching those off. Like we've kind of done it informally, but we need to make it a more of a formal right trip thing that we're doing.
0: And I love that when we leave, like there's something for both of us there, even though like you're way more into the history side and yeah. I'm more into the like emotional connection side that when we leave it's like hey i learned all of this and you're like hey i learned all of this and then we put it together and look at all the things we learned
1: i know it's pretty cool <laughs> it's pretty amazing but you know i'm a little distracted because i'm still nervous about these documents babe that's right i mean i've got them all over my desk and in my desk and
0: babe you, you gotta take what? care of that
1: i i'm gonna go see mark right now go i'm gonna go down to austin hand these papers over and i'm gonna feel a lot better before nicholas cage can do anything to me <laughs> that's right okay i'm out of here <laughs> You're going to have to sign off that week. here I go. <laughs> go get it, babe.
0: Well, I guess we're done here. Hardy Party Five and a Half, over and out. We'll see you next time.
1: made it to LBJ Library I cannot wait to go in and I cannot wait to get this to mark so the weight of all these classified documents will be off my shoulders the LBJ library is located on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin it was dedicated in 1971 and is one of 13 presidential libraries now open the library houses 45 million pages of historical documents let's go in and see what we got
0: picture. It was just a human dynamo. you walked in the room, you would know it if your eyes were closed and your back was turned. Oh my God, there's that'd be dead.
2: a tornado in pants, larger than life. The
0: good news is that anybody who ever worked for daddy became part of his family. Bad news is that anybody who ever worked for daddy became
1: part of his family. Single the single most intelligent man that I've ...totally honest and calculatingly
0: devious. and yeah. ...it could be awful, caring... and just this, just this internal engine in him that could not stop. ...tough, demanding, cruel. ...all of these opposites playing together inside him.
1: The library has an animatronic LBJ that shares popular LBJ one-liners, as well as a timeline of his life. From his birth in Stonewall, Texas in 1908, through his career as a teacher in San Antonio, to his rise to the Senate, and then ultimately his presidency from 1963 to 1969. LBJ loved phones and he had them all over the White House, wherever he was. You can pick up a phone at the museum and listen to conversations that were recorded during his presidency uh... interest in your cooperation and your uh... communication and a good many people told me that they uh... heard
0: about your statement i guess on tv wasn't it
1: yes that's right I,
0: I, I, i've i been locked up in this office and i haven't seen it but i won't tell you how grateful i am and how how worthy i'm going to try to be of all your hopes well thank you very much i'm so happy to hear that and i knew that you had just that great spirit, and you know you have our support and backing. Well, if well, we know what a difficult period this is, it's a, it's a destiny.
1: The museum has a great exhibition on Lady Bird Johnson. She was the first first lady to interact directly with Congress, and she employed her own press secretary. You'll see dresses and china and you'll just get a feel for what it was like to live in the White House during the 60s. You can even walk through her personal office in the museum. She also campaigned heavily for her husband and went all across the country drumming up support for him. She was also an advocate for beautifying the nation's cities and highways. After LBJ saw that Harry Truman had his own Oval Office in his museum, LBJ had to have his own. It's a seven-eighths mock-up of his Oval Office. Director Mark Lawrence took me behind the scenes where they have a private area to hold special events at the museum. awe-inspiring atrium area you can see the five floors stuffed with presidential documents truly a -a one-of-a-kind experience deep in the heart of Texas okay I just had a fascinating tour of the LBJ presidential library and mark came down and talked with me for about an hour about presidential stuff classified documents all kinds of fascinating oh wait classified documents i forgot to give him this oh my i gotta go back i hope i don't get arrested rebecca you'll be my one phone call